Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And we're back. Hello, everybody. You are once more listening to the Telegraph Rugby Podcast with Charlie Morgan. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Ben. And Charles Richardson as well. What's happening, Charles? Hi, Ben. Along with myself, Ben Coles. A, uh, a twist on the usual question, uh, given none of us were in France, which means no pastries, no cafe alays, no uh, Asahis, either the, uh, the famous local beer of France sponsoring this tournament. <laughs> um, guys, which games did you watch this weekend? From the comfort of your own home. Charles, I'll start with you. What did you see? Uh, watched nearly all of them. And, um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it was a strange weekend, wasn't it? Because we didn't really learn very much except for Italy being quite bad and New Zealand being very good. Um, so, yeah, watched nearly all of them. Thought for a moment Portugal might do it in the in the upset of the weekend. Thought for a moment Georgia might do it in the upset of the weekend. But we haven't still had our upset. Charlie, what did you watch? We're still surprises rather than shocks, aren't we? But yeah, I, I again, like Charles, watched loads of them. Um, managed to fit my son's third birthday party in between hey. watching rugby. But no, Darcy Graham was my highlight because that was a phenomenal individual performance against Romania. Um, amazing athleticism, amazing balance. Just really cool to watch. And our invite for that birthday party was... You don't want to go to those where... things, mate. You do not want to come to those things. Okay, sure. Yeah, I had eyes on Australia-Portugal, South Africa, Tonga, and one other game which now escapes me, which tells you how... how... Oh, no, Scotland-Romania. How could I forget? That it's because I was writing try every single game. Can it, just on that note, it, it, it was a bit of a, a bit of a weird weekend in that sense. But if I could ask you for a highlight, Charles, what, what was your favourite bit about it? Um, I just think the way that Portugal went about their business was was really impressive. We, we've we've sort of sang their praises already on this podcast, and um, I don't. I think everybody thought after Australia had got sort of pummeled by Wales last week that there'd be a reaction, um, and and there was of sorts. They certainly didn't roll over and they didn't lose, which obviously would have been worst case scenario for them. But I, I think Portugal did really ruffle a few feathers. Um, they've got some. Just the way that they play the game is just so fun. They're always looking to keep the ball alive. At times in that first half, it was almost sevens-like, where they were sort of running backwards or sideways, desperately trying to keep the ball alive. And, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch and, and, and a wonderful way for them to play rugby. And uh, I'd like to watch more of them in the future. And I'm sad that potentially we're not really going to see very much of them for maybe four years in, in terms of the, a tier one limelight. We'll certainly dig into that a bit more. Charlie, what did you like? Can we go Fiji, Fiji, Georgia, Mm. and just how styles make fights, as the the boxing cliche goes, but just really interesting juncture that Fiji were at, knowing that they had to keep winning, but also Georgia finally turned up, actually, and they were really stubborn, um, two really contrasting sides, and as somebody has made the point, um, I think Tier 2 Rugby again on Twitter to shout shout them out, um, just that those two sides have developed in a really cool way as far as developing their own and, and and 
and just making sure they're strengthening their own pathways and that has come to fruition in, in just a really cool World Cup game but to echo Charles let's see more of them please yep yeah agreed um, if I had to pick one from I, I didn't forget the Scotland-Romania game obviously mainly because I really enjoyed um, Johnny Matthews cameo off the bench the uh, replacement winning his first cap he only joined the squad a week ago and he was over for a try within within seconds if you if you chat to followers of of, uh, of Glasgow he, this is quite common he, he's got quite a ridiculous try scoring record and the way he was uh he was straight on the field and, and getting involved and scoring a try I thought was was quite brilliant actually so yeah if I had to pick a highlight I would probably go with his performance we're going to be chatting to JP Doyle a bit later um which should give us an interesting take on the officiating side of the tournament Charlie I feel like we kind of we, we started with a few incidents that sort of were were discussed on that front but but maybe things have settled down slightly would you, would you say no good <laughs> they, 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 there's always one isn't there no there's always there's always one I think sometimes you've just got to separate it and be adult and go the outcome of this game is probably not going to be determined mm. by the referee. I'm really interested to know who he thinks is going to referee the final. Mm. Charles, what about you? What do you want to hear from? Yeah, um, I, I want to know more about the TMO and about that the, the sort of the, the the role of the fourth official in the game uh, and the bunker, especially with all the stuff that we've seen with VAR in football this weekend. Um, chat to people who have been watching a lot of Premiership Rugby Cup. Um, and I've watched the sort of I've tried to keep abreast of it as much as possible, and and they're all for a, a, a lack of TMO and, and and a lack of TMO intervention from fan up to coach, and you, and you wonder whether like people are calling for in football at the minute whether that's the way that rugby should be going with 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 less TMO intervention. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love I'd love to hear his thoughts on that. I'd love to hear his thoughts. I mean, rugby wasn't the sport which had the biggest refereeing controversies over the weekend, so at least it can hang its hat on for that once. For once, which was which was quite nice. But but I think yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what he has to say. I feel like I'm losing um, the ability to determine what isn't isn't a red card when I watch an incident live with with no replays. I don't know if this is something that you two also have. There was definitely a couple of times on the weekend where I thought, oh, that's red, and then it wasn't, or. Oh, yeah. that's that's not much. And then it was more Charlie. Yeah, well, it's, it's most heightened with the, with this the, the, with the bunker system, right? And and it going to the going to the bunker as a yellow card, and you going that's red for sure. And then nope, okay. There's the mitigation that I didn't see at the time, mm. but this but the bunker official has picked up, which you could maybe find in just about every incident. The big one, and I think hopefully we're going to get JP's take on it, is the Etzbeth on Piertau one, and how that is different to the Tom Curry on Juan Cruz Malia. Um, mm. We'll see, and, and and actually, I'm quite interested as well in how these, how the narrative of these plays throughout a World Cup, because these referees are together all the time, and they're obviously discussing these incidents all the time, and whether the uh, nature of what is a red card changes over the course of the tournament, because that's quite interesting in itself. We need to discuss this with management, but potentially a, a bottle of champagne to the first referee to give a straight red card at this at this World oh, Cup. Yeah, not happening. It's going to have to, it's gonna have to take a serious act of skullduggery, yeah, unfortunately. It's, it's we, drop kicks. Or, Sebastian yeah. Vahamahina's not in the squad, is he? He's not in the French squad. It's days left for Lavanini to uh, contribute oh, yeah. to, uh, to, to this tournament <laughs> and add to his uh, superb <laughs> record. Um, just a quick mention before we dig into the, the weekend's action about stuff on the website. Brian Moore's latest column about how how we can sort of maybe change the, the format of the tournament moving forward and thinking about a plate competition to kind of involve these tier two teams who we've really enjoyed watching but whose whose time is coming to an end is, is quite interesting as well as a chat from Gavin Mayers with, with Hamish McLennan who's in charge of Australian rugby and obviously they are in an interesting position now where the Wallabies are technically alive but they need a mir miracle from uh, from Portugal I think mm. next week which is interesting. Fiji just need one point don't they so is that right Fiji a losing bonus point for Fiji is enough to take they, them they just need one point yeah sorry yeah. that that is correct and also just wanted to plug Charles's um power rankings can you if you had to sum up your power rankings in in 15 seconds who's doing well and who isn't um, well, this week, obviously, they're, they're a weekly feature, but this week, uh, Italy have, have really... Italy and Fiji were, were big losers this week, and probably Georgia and New Zealand were the biggest winners, I think. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, and Portugal. Portugal went up quite a long way as well. These are sort of, if, 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 you, if you're unaware, these are our unofficial, um, unofficial world rankings that we do. Well, of, official in, in Telegraph Towers, official in my, in my brain, but uh, World Rugby pay no heed to them, um, <laughs> unfortunately, I think. Um, it's but their yeah. loss, so I there been, there's, been, there's been some winners. Uh, this week was slightly more difficult because um, there weren't sort of that many big games that pool defining games you wouldn't say so there weren't that many movers and shakers but certainly New Zealand profited and, and Italy uh, didn't unfortunately and now you've teed up the weekend let's get into our roundup of the games that took place over the last few days right let's start with the game on Sunday night between South Africa and Tonga South Africa scoring 49 points seven tries probably fairly happy Charlie, I, I guess, with various aspects of the game, if they, I sort of wish they had scored a few more points, just because then we wouldn't be coming up with these crazy permutations for how they can potentially be knocked out, which is very much a, a live thing that we need to discuss. But just, just in terms of how they played, and and I guess how Tonga played as well, what did you think of it? It sounds like Jack and Arbor bit pretty hard on the suggestion that. Ireland and Scotland could conspire to match fix and, and send them out, which is quite entertaining. Oh, I thought they played clunky, to be honest, but I yeah. think that's that's to be expected given they were bringing in Andre Pollard for a first start in a while on the back of, I think, half an hour's for uh, Leicester Tigers in the, in the Premiership Cup. I do think they get more width in the game with Manny Leboc at 10. Um, but, you know, that's that's Pollard is, is tried and tested, so experienced. He, he's just very good at facilitating those around and very good at kicking his goals as we saw and it was interesting to see Lebot come off the bench and, and do the same it was almost inevitable the first one was out wide on the white on out wide on the right wasn't it from Cobus mm. Reinex tap and go and it was almost like he's Pollard is 100% getting this it was it was functional and as you say there's still some moving parts there they're going to have to make a trade off in their background and in their backline sorry somewhere with, I've seen suggestions of Pollard starting at twelve. I can't see that. I, I can see I can see Pollard being contingency on the bench because um, I just think it's such a big call to get to to bring bring Libok aside after how well he's been and how much he's clearly adding to them in in harness with Valenza. But everywhere we're gonna we're gonna get in every every side heading towards the knockouts seemingly apart from maybe Ireland have got these trade offs to make and it's just really interesting those. That win over Tonga, who were stubborn and who were pretty creative in themselves, have just sort of created a more a few more questions about South Africa as they head into this down week. And also, Mapimpi being ruled out for the tournament means that South Africa could call up Lukanyuam. So that's well, well, they have they, they have, have called up Lukanyuam. Now, yeah, that's that now is official. official. So he's so he's back involved, which is which I find quite interesting because Jesse Creel has actually played quite well, and Jesse Creel was mm. actually the the kind of the saddest part of twenty nineteen is that he got injured in yeah. the New Zealand game in the in the first. First outing for South Africa, and then he was out of the tournament. And then Lukanyuan came in and was was one of the best players in the tournament. He was certainly in most teams of the tournament because of how well he defended and sort of was such a key cog in that in that backline. Kane and Moody potentially going from second choice thirteen to the next in line on the wing. Well, this is what I wanted to ask. I wondered how many players from that team who who aren't kind of your obvious starters. So, so there were there were players last night who were obviously going to be in the in the first choice team. So Etzebeth, Kalisi, one of Vermeulen and Willemser. Andre Pollard most likely at, at fly half. I just wondered whether someone like a Moody or an Esther Hazen or a, a Marvin Ori or a Vili LaRue would have maybe forced their way. <laughs> Charlie, your, <laughs> Charlie your, head, your head's in your hands and I feel like you're going to have to explain yourself here. <laughs> no, it's just I'm just re, rehashing in my head the, the shout of Vili LaRue being player of the tournament. I think he's a phenomenal player. He's just not looked, just looked a little bit flat. I'd say at this tournament, it's been kind um, for yesterday, I think, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe. Um, oh, he scored. He scored a try. Um, we're still sparky in moments, um, but no, Willemsa seems to have overtaken him. That looked like a surprise in the in the first couple of games, but actually looks totally justified at the minute. Just a word on Tonga. Lots of love for Ben Tamifu. Oh, loads. And how so well he much played. love. Just fun. He's been. A, a great leader in this side and this was sort of the game I thought where he finally got sort of a lot of appreciation for what he for how he well he plays and he's I can remember him going back to the days of the Chiefs winning Super Rugby and being part of that side and what a, a decade ago God, yeah. that's, that's a bit depressing Charlie, Charlie, <laughs> Charlie's just shaking his head <laughs> next to me because <laughs> that final I 
because like, yesterday I watched that final. What about what about the great the great Ben, ben Tamafuna story where he returned to Racing uh, after a particularly large summer by the sounds of things, 166 kilos he uh, tipped the scale at, and they wouldn't let him play until he lost 20 kilos. And that's in France as well, where their their conditioning is not quite as uh, as strict as as it is in um, England. Yeah. Uh, so so last night he would have been around 140 kilos, and he still looked by far the biggest bloke on the entire pitch so can you believe and can you even begin to imagine what he would have been like at 166 kilo racked up the carries didn't he he was carrying yeah. from everywhere line out peels all sorts I think he'd had moments. eight in the first 20 minutes or, yeah. or something awesome. mad yeah, yeah and, was... and, and absolutely sent Khaleesi flying off that first in that, in that, in that first Tonga attack he just went through him like he wasn't there it, it's such a common theme of this World Cup but I basically watched Tonga and thought if you could just have like better preparation and more games against Tier One with the players you've got, because the, the set piece was actually not that bad. Like it was, no. it was quite good. If you could then have more exposure, there's not a bad team there, but we just don't get the time to see it, and, and that's the that's the issue. Whereas, oh yeah, sorry Charlie, shout out for Pat Pellegrini and Reed oh, Dan Schofield's feature on him. That was one of the most uplifting moments of the tournament. One of the best individual tries of the tournament. Bit bit scrappy, but sure, <laughs> take it. Fantastic on a, on a week in a week. Sorry, where um, obviously we lost we lost Jersey as a club as it stands, um, and there's been sort of more scrutiny on how the RFU are resourcing the championship for a Coventry player to come in and, and do something like that against the world champions is just seriously cool. It was one. I, obviously, we were watching on TV. We weren't there, but that was one of the loudest received tries. I think just watching on TV, the noise sounded absolutely incredible, and it was a uh, it was a great moment. I was I was just going to segue from talking about Tonga in there their lack of Tier 1 games to a team who have multiple Tier 1 games because they are considered Tier 1 in, in Italy. And, and what happened on Friday night against New Zealand? Charles, I, I, I think you had eyes on this. Can, mm. you, can, you, try and, can you try and unpack this for me? Um, it was a very, very bad night in the office uh, for Italy. We, we've spoken a lot about Italy and how they have, how they have improved. Even if you, if, you, if you move away from scores and, and numbers, they have improved significantly. This is the best attacking team that the that Italy have ever produced certainly the most ambitious and the most enterprising um, arguably the best back line that's up for debate but it, it would certainly be close um, but they were beaten in every area very well on Friday night and uh, New Zealand were excellent um, looking really well placed for the knockouts um, unfortunately the game the game was done by 30 minutes in, the game was done. It was done over as a contest. New Zealand had already secured the bonus point, and I think Italy just fell away from there. But it was very uncharacteristic of them because if there's something that you always associate with Italy, especially in the Six Nations, you know they've never been on the on the you know the wrong side of one of these hidings in the Six Nations, and you you never associate with them falling away and and and, and slipping away like that. And they really did, and and, and you know not even you know. Lamoureux, on, 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 that Captain Lamoureux, Captain Fantastic, could could get them backfiring again, and it was all, yeah, it was all, it was very, it was very dreary, it was very dismal, and and there are zero positives, I would say, except for two pretty good tries, really odd game that they scored two really nice tries, and you were sort of there like, oh, so you actually can play rugby, you know? Is that defensive Captain Lamoureux? Is oh, that what yeah. your, yeah. is that a reference to your fantasy? I team? thought, I thought that he was going to be making lots of tackles in defence in in a in a probably a comfortable New Zealand victory he'd be flying around defensively chopping people and still there scrapping on the 65th 70th minute before New Zealand pulled away and um, unfortunately that did not transpire in any way mm. so yeah I've wasted my defensive captain for fantasy rugby unfortunately Kieran Crowley the Italy head coach afterwards I saw described it as a glorified training run for New Zealand which I thought was just a fantastic put down Charlie I, I want to know how much should you read into this as a sign that New Zealand are title contenders, or is it just that they blew Italy away within the first few minutes with their physicality, and then it was a, a massacre? Like, like, is it a one-off thing, or is it a sign of a trend? I think, I think there's a limited amount you can read into it. Um, Italy were horrible. Italy were absolutely horrible. The try that um, Adi Tavares scored from that fake line-out more oh, yeah. just really bad another line-out period in the, at the front in the second half where Dane Coles go over, goes over they got carved up in from first phase which is just a just a sign of just really just really like disharmony and they're not they're not a side like that and I think Kieran Crowley also said we might not even review this which I'd recommend to be honest because you know, some things that they were so uncharacteristic as Charles kind of hints there they can 
they can play quite nicely when they get a little bit of phase shape going. They stretched New Zealand early on, and you thought, wow, okay, this could be a bit of a tit for tat game. But you're right, they couldn't couldn't live with the physicality. I think um, and there's an answer to your question on how much you can read into it from New Zealand's point of view. They are uncannily good at thumping teams that give them sort of a, a scent of that blood, aren't they? They always um, emerging nations. They have just they consistently kind of score three figures, eight, uh, 80, 70, 80 points against those sides. Um, and that's what happened. They just got on a roll, didn't they? Um, and they were, had a, felt like they had a point to prove on the back of a week off um, and sort of making a statement as to, you know, we're, we're also contenders in this tournament. What I would say is I think France, South Africa and Ireland are a little bit ahead of them. I'd say I'd put them just slightly behind that as part of a top four, but still slightly behind that as far as I think they're capable of a big performance in the knockouts. I'd be surprised if they strung three together and um, watch them win it now. Um, but, <laughs> but no, it's really interesting. I don't think, I think they'd be gunning for Ireland, obviously, given what happened in that series. However, I think Ireland have them covered, um, but we'll see. I thought the return, I mean, the return of Shannon Brazil was, was noti- noticeable, wasn't it? Well, so what they've yeah. done over that week off is get those two guys, Geordie Barrett and Shannon Frizzell, guys who've come through and made the 12 and the 6 position traditionally quite problematic positions for them um, since the retirement of, of Jerome Kaino and Mar Noni have solidified their, their kind of standing in those positions and it showed, didn't it? From there to a tighter game, which was Australia against Portugal, which was, was really fun, actually. Um, I, I was going to say two teams that are quite well matched, but that's quite a damning <laughs> indictment <laughs> of, where, of where the Wallabies are at the moment. But I think we all, um, everyone who seems to be watching it and and um, who was following it on the Telegraph website, live blog, which I was doing, seemed to, like me, j- just really be enjoying the way that Portugal played and the width that they played with and the skill that they clearly possessed, not just in the back three, but actually um, across their team, maybe apart from Nicholas Martins, who, who couldn't catch a cold yesterday. Mm. They they just played with such wonderful intent and, and it made me, like Charles suggested earlier, just a bit... A bit sort of bummed out that you know this is this is kind of it potentially that we're going to see a Portugal on a on a big stage for four years because mm. there's clearly a lot of talent there. Charlie, do you, do you, is it a similar vibe for you? I know that you really enjoyed the draw the draw with Georgia and and just other performances they put in I've, as well. I've, I really enjoyed watching them and I just kind of feel like that this is has to be the spur to to make sure that people see these teams more. They've they've come in and and you mentioned last week didn't we that it's not been a not been a total success story for these emerging nations, nations, but they have been a side that have come in with a clear tactical identity, and they've fulfilled that because they've stayed, they've they'd have they've had this courage of their own of their convictions. They've moved the ball in the face of line speed. They've just done really well to kind of fulfil how they've clearly been thinking about playing the game in training, and that's there's just so much to be said to, for that. I just remember a chat that I had with um, Andy Robinson while he was coach of um, Romania, which was just even if you have a playoff for these. Um, for the for for the Six Nations relegation, you just give those sides some sort of motivation yep. towards working for that. You give the whole nation even a kind of a, a, a way to engage around the sport, um, and I think that could be really beneficial in the in the case of someone like Portugal. Because can you imagine if they win a tournament on the back of playing the way they do, the feel good factor when they then bring that into a game against the side that finished bottom of the Six Nations? I know there's so much to kind of the Six Nations business plan has to sort of extricate itself out of that to kind of make sure that there can be promotion relegation, but how good would that be? And also just just sort of backing up what Brian Moore's written on the um, on the website today about the introduction of a plate competition in the World Cup, how, how well would that work in France, where at the minute uh, all the matches are being played in, in, in pretty beautiful stadiums, but they're by and large football stadiums, whereas you could be playing these plate matches in the sort of rugby strongholds of France in the in the Stade Marcel Michelin, the Stade Félix Mayol, in these in these very traditional historic rugby stadiums. Um, and I just think it's an excellent idea, and, and I do think it's something they have to look at. Um, yeah, Portugal yesterday, um, absolutely fabulous. Rafael Storti on the on the wing is a, is a total gun. He's a total total gun. He, 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 per eighty minutes this tournament, he's beat more defenders than anybody in, in the entire tournament. I just can't um, finish chatting about this section without wondering what Marika Corobetti was doing in defence <laughs> for Australia for a lot of the game, whether it was catching kicks or, or just blitzing out of the defensive line as though he was trying to you know, be a missile and, and just missing people. I, I found it staggering. There, there's positives for Australia, right? I sort of think, out of that game, which is weird. Like Angus, was, Angus Bell was great, but yeah. I mean... What was he doing at the start where he, he's 
collecting that kick, reeling backwards under little pressure and taking it over his own try line. Then he's being tackled into into dead ball, and it's a five meter scrum to Portugal. Just when, you know, just when everyone's thinking, "Oh my, oh my word, they, they can't do it. Mission Impossible can't be pulled off, can it?" And when Australia wanted to start, Eddie Jones has spoke the whole tournament about about quick starts and about them having to start well, and then that happens, and you're just thinking, "Oh my word, Port- Portugal couldn't, could they?" Scotland fans, we haven't forgotten about you. We're going to chat about you a bit later with our preview of the Ireland game. But uh, next, we're going to chat about England's game against Samoa. So England had a week off just to prepare for their final group game against Samoa. Spending their downtime by based on their various social media feeds. A lot of them going to Disneyland was, was the main thing I, I gauged. Did you see anything different, Charlie? Had to stay in France. Didn't Freddie Stewart go to Nice? All sorts, I think. Oh. Okay. They mixed it up. It's good. Charles? No, nothing to add on that front. I'm sure they I'm sure they had a good time in Disneyland, but business but business starts this weekend. <laughs> business start this weekend. <laughs> I hate Disneyland. <laughs> you you'd have had them in a dark room lifting weights and just yeah, preparing exactly. for the uh, the final game of the pools. Um, um Tom Curry's back available. Remember him? I feel like we've spoken a lot about him this World Cup, even though he's only played for a matter of minutes given his, his red card. It, it, there's sort of there's actually quite a few questions here that I've got for Charlie because he's seen them in the flesh recently against Chile and I wonder what kind of team that they go for do, do they do they go with a bit of Ford at 10 and Farrell at 12 do they keep someone like Henry Aaron do they scored five tries does Tom Curry come straight back in what, what kind of team are you expecting them to roll with against Samoa you would expect them God if I know Steve Borthwick I know that he'll probably hold something back for the quarter final However, he needs to build a little bit of cohesion, doesn't he? And I think we've all been pretty consistent all along saying that I think Ford Farrell has been in, been in the plan. I think somebody that's played his way into the first-choice shake-up quite deservedly is Ben Earl. Mm. And I think that maybe means that Ben Earl stays at eight with Tom Curry at seven because we know how important Courtney Laws is at six. He was He's just that extra line-out option. He's a key leadership figure. Um but even Apola now doesn't seem that integral, does he, as, as that number eight? And he's clearly playing his way back into, into, into form. He's going to need to. Laws wasn't involved against Chile, which suggests that he's neither he nor, nor Jamie George were, which suggests they're the two, the two guys that will need to go um, a, a lot of those big games. Um, so I'd maybe, I'd maybe predict a sort of back row of Laws, uh, Curry, Earl. And then I think whether... Apparently, apparently Farrell was up for media earlier in the week, which suggests that he might not necessarily be an automatic starter, which would be very interesting. Another thing we've said all along is that I don't think Borthwick should be afraid to not start Farrell if he feels that there's a better blend. But I do think he'll want to have a look at that 10-12. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think he'll go. He'll go. Earl Curry straight back in. I mean, Willis was good against Willis was good against was. Chile, wasn't he? But I mean. It does seem like Curry is the the starter at open side, and and, and although we we rate Jack Willis a lot, I think as as a, he's a you know he's one that we really rate on the podcast, uh, and he did obviously did wonders with Toulouse last season. He um, hasn't quite um, fully convinced an English shirt in over the past month or so. I think that's I think that's fair to say, and I think that Curry Curry will come straight back in. Laws at six. We know that Steve Borthwick likes a, a line out jumping option at blind side. Um, and I would be all for Ford Farrell. The, the big question that we that we actually posed last um, last week on the podcast is who starts at thirteen. Um, we know that Manu Tuangi, as he's got a little bit older, has a bit of a sort of defensive frailty. Maybe has lost a yard of pace at, at thirteen with with Farrell as well. So do they go for an out and out thirteen in in Ollie Lawrence or Joe Marchant? Do they push Marchant out onto the wing? Um, yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating. Um, it's going to be fascinating. You always look for those little clues within games, don't you? And, and Ollie Lawrence was shifted to thirteen when Ford and Farrell kind of united, and when Marchant came on, even though he was sort of number th- twenty-three and he was in that squad as a seeming afterthought, afterthought, he came on on the wing, which is what he's done in various warm-up games. So I certainly think that that's in their plans. Not to put any pressure on Steve Borthwick, but the record for the most tries in a Rugby World Cup is eight, which is shared by uh, Jonah Lomu. Ryan Havana, and as I flick through my tabs, Julian Sevilla. Henry Arundel's already got five. 
I mean, it, all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, finishing the World Cup with Henry Arundel holding the record for the most tries in the tournament doesn't actually seem that ridiculous. What I want to see is somebody put their hand up at the front of a press conference and and, and ask Steve Borthwick why he hasn't started Henry Arundel on that basis. By someone, I think it just would bewilder him. By someone, so do you need someone in this in this <laughs> yeah, room? Love, is, that what, <laughs> is that what you're saying? Um, yeah. But would, would you would you start Arundel? I mean, I think I probably would. I think I probably would, but I can certainly understand why they might not. This is a weird answer. I don't think they will. Sorry, if I was a betting man, I don't think they will. I, I'm also not sure they will, but in a, but I also don't see... I don't think it's a problem if you do. It, it, it depends. It, basically, England are in this really interesting situation where they're far more comfortable than I think we expected they would be, if we're being brutally honest, at the end of August, where they've qualified with a game to go, and topping the group is basically done and it makes the selection for Samoa quite interesting because we watched a bit of Japan Samoa last week and Samoa Samoa lively at times and and a bit like Tonga you sort of felt they were finally just getting into their groove when it was almost too late in terms of the grand scheme of the tournament because you know they just running out of game time having prepared and the Ben Lam red card was not the wind out of their sails a little bit but there's there's talent there if given time to gel, isn't there? And so I wonder what Steve, I wonder what Steve Borthwick's thinking, Charlie. The talent there it looks disjointed, though. And yeah. I think yeah. I think what he's thinking is that he needs to get he needs to get through the game, um, while as I say, building that little bit of cohesion. And but you know the point you make is is totally fair. I could think. You, could you have a better warm up for Fiji in a quarterfinal in terms it's of the way shot, they play? Yeah. You know, it, could you have a better sort of dry run? They'll potentially have a better line-out with Theo McFarlane well, knocking around yeah. because well, <laughs> Fiji's line-out has been real poor. And that's a big... Watching that, as good as... As entertaining as that Fiji-Georgia game was and as cool as it is to see Fiji kind of pr- all but secure their passage to the knockouts, you did think, you know, there are areas there that England can go after. The one thing about the one thing about Samoa, there's a... there's a I mean, we'll come, we'll come, we'll come on to permutations more with, with with regard to Ireland Scotland I'm sure but the, the one thing about Samoa is there has been a filthy rumour going around today that if Samoa win with five points and Argentina and Japan draw there is a chance that um, Samoa could qualify now we don't necessarily agree with that but all I would say is is that no one seems to know and I don't think even world rugby themselves quite know um, how it would pan out I don't think they know really how um, how Paul B will pan out, which we'll come on to. So there is a chance. Um, Samo- I mean, if you were Samoan and you were a glass half full, you would be saying, let's go out against England, try and get five points and see what happens, chance or arm sort of thing, wouldn't you? So therefore, Steve Borthwick and England will not be underestimating them, I doubt. And just finally, to wrap up this section on England, um, Paul D, worst Paul of the tournament? Oh, I thought you were going to say ever, and I think you'd be close. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, been really, it's been bad. Ever. ever. It's been bad. Ever, it's been ever requires a lot of research. Argentina, thoroughly <laughs> underwhelming. Samoa, pretty underwhelming. Japan, historically underwhelming. Japan, but also Japan better than expected pre-tournament in a weird way. Cause no. we, yeah, we, and we, they're, still in, they're still in with a shout-out qualifying. We had yeah. such low expectations in August about them. They're still, I, yeah. they're still they, are, they are real bad, but they, they could still be in a quarter-final. In fact, it's more than a... Well, no, it's not more than a could, but it's a very real could. It's not a speculative That's going to be a good game. It's yeah. going to be two desperate sides um, kind of clawing for some sort of form, some, thought, some sort of fluency. That's going to be really entertaining. Um, Argentina, Japan. Chile sure. were okay. I mean, the lowest, lowest-ranked team in it. They, I think for that, on that basis, they were, they were probably a bit of a surprise package, weren't they? Yeah. They were better than I think probably we expected. Be, being kind, definitely the worst pool of the tournament. Maybe not the worst pool ever. I'll give you that. <laughs> Come back next week for Charlie yeah. on the worst I mean, rugby I mean, world cup groups in terms. Pool C has been a much more fun yeah. pool, but I'm, in terms of standard, I'm not convinced it's been significantly mm. better than Pool D. I'm going to stop you there. I'm not going to hear you besmirch Pool C, and we're going to move on because we're going to chat to former international referee JP Doyle about what he makes about the tournament so far. Delighted to be joined now by international referee JP Doyle on the podcast. JP, hope you're well. Yeah, very well. Really appreciate you guys uh, taking some time to have me on for a bit of ramblings. It, it's been a very interesting tournament from a refereeing perspective. We've been there's sort of been a balance of trying to introduce the the logistics of the bunker to supporters who don't necessarily follow the league that closely. There's been been red card incident, yellow card incidents. How, how do you sort of feel it's going from a from an officiating standpoint so far? 
Um, I, I think mixed. I think if we're honest, mixed. Um, I think what we're trying to do is the right thing. So we're trying to um, avoid long-term head injuries. We're trying to reduce head knocks in games, um, concussion and sub-concussive events. So we're trying to reduce all that down. And, and that's our basic principle, our starting point. Now, where in this tournament we've got along to is a little bit more confusing because what I've found from um, whether it's journalists like yourself or pundits on TV or players or former players, we're all supportive of where we're trying to go with this. But there's probably a disagreement on how we're getting there and how should we get there. And I think that's causing angst and anxiety around um, the people watching in the pubs and clubs and schools uh, around the place. Is that is that JP Charles here? Sorry, is that a transparency thing? Do you think? Um, it does seem like I don't know how you think from 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 the start of the tournament that that the referees and and the TMOs and the bunker have improved um, their manner of explaining um, decisions to the to the public watching on television. I think on the on that first weekend, as it was a new thing, it's still a trial technically. Um, it was a little bit higgledy piggledy, wasn't it? Whereas I think now you hear the TMO saying to the referee, you're now on screen, you can explain your decision. It's a little bit more down the cricket route. Is that something that you've noticed as well? And is, is that what you're sort of getting at, the, the, the clarity almost? Yeah, and I think that's that's point one. They need they, they needed to um, take some time and absorb how to do things efficiently and correctly on pitch. And you can see there is, a, there is an evolution of how they're doing that. They are bringing more clarity. They're using a certain set of words and guidelines that people can follow more readily. But where, where, they're, where it's probably been uh, confusing for people is they're seeing uh, incidents that they feel are the same. Now, the best way I can describe this is it's a bit like snowflakes. They all look the same till you really, really examine them. Then each one is so uniquely different. You can have, of course, different outcomes. So are the referees and the TMOs and the, as they're called, the FPRO bunker people who are sitting in Roland Garris, going uh, going through it in a better format yes they are and if you you feel that as people watching that well that's the outcome that's how you know they're doing better so there's that bit of it but there's probably more sides to it going along than that do you think do you think that the bunker therefore has brought uh, speaking at present day do you think that the bunker has been more positive than negative on the tournament so far well that's that's one to really throw back to you and that's not to double negative that's not to not answer the question the, the, the people who need to answer that question are the people viewing and the people watching and consuming the sports. But um, what it's done is sped up. The, so what has it done? Well, it has sped up those foul play. So you're not getting 10, 20 replays of a referee standing there while someone's constantly being hit in the head as they're trying to work out the correct answer under huge pressure, not only of the 20 to 85,000 people in the stadium, not only to the, um, the wider audience, but now a global audience. So, yes, it's removed that huge frustration. But by putting things on, you know, in rugby league terms, on report and sending it to the bunker, the FPRO, the foul play officer, I think what has happened is now we're watching this little uh, icon on the screen, which is red or yellow, and wondering what it's coming back. Now, the fear is when it becomes more partisan in the crunch games, whatever you as a supporter feel those crunch games are, that could be the, the Argentina-Japan game or it could be Scotland-Ireland this weekend. We're hoping that it goes our way of whatever way you're supporting rather than what the incident deserves. So, yes, the bunker is, is providing a brilliant clarity for referees and what they need to do to speed up the game, to take the pressure off, to make things less draconian for them. But it's also created other ripple effects, and that's to be expected. That's not a, a purge on the system. That's just what's happened. JP, are we, are we going to see a direct red that doesn't go to the bunker, and is it all right if we don't? I, I would say it's highly unlikely. I think you've seen some that were fairly clearly toward that line, and we would all, I would say, if you lined all the guys up in the room there, they around your table there, they would agree that that was red. You know it's coming back as red, and it comes back as red, and that's okay. So, no, we don't have to have one, but I, I, I do feel it, 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 and I don't believe it has been removed from the referees. I'm, I'm very certain of that. They do have the power. But the, 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 the incidents we, or the, the, the reasons I listed earlier around pressure, that's removed for them. So you, you can totally understand, and we can support why they wouldn't do that.
take us behind the curtain a little bit during a tournament. Do do decisions get dis- clearly decisions get get discussed by the body of officials that are working at, at said tournament? Do they do does it therefore evolve? And do we does what are becomes a red does red hold threshold red card threshold sorry change over the over the course of this tournament as as officials discuss certain incidents so what's the best way of saying the clearest reds won't change they'll be reds and the clearest yellows will stay yellow so you're going to talk about the subjective bit the bit that my team says it's red and your team says it's yellow it's the debatable when we talk about facts in rugby there's very few facts apart from I freeze the tape and you're standing onside or offside. And we've seen in VAR how difficult that is, you know, to even get that, which is a um, an objective fact, correct. The subjective facts around, did he do this? Did he do that? What was the force? Who initiated? Was it passive? Was it aggressive? All these things are subjected to how you are viewing it at the time and angles and camera angles. So, Will the yellows get dissected, that yellow could be red and red could be yellow, and there will be a flow around the tournament? Of course, but you would expect that. Even if it was a schools tournament that you're all hanging out and chatting, what you would give around the breakdown in that tournament will evolve with the teams. This will too. And you will see the best referees, and I don't think I'll be speaking out of turn to say you're Wayne Barnes, you're Yako Piper, you're Ben O'Keefe's. You see them having a greater... Um, malleability in their hands to spot the moments and deal with them correctly and that's what seniority and and class of performance gives you and look we all love to hate the referees and i'm sure those three refs i listed will have plenty of naysayers out there but they have plenty way more people who back their wonderful abilities on the pitch and i think that's where we are with that so a bit long-winded but i hope that answers it jp who's getting the final one of those three you mentioned well, nationality is always a, a, a big thing. So, you know, if 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 New Zealand get there, well, Ben O'Keefe won't do it and South Africa or England. So you're looking at those three referees. You're also, it's a subjective choice of the, um, the people who hold the decisions. So it could go outside of those three. But you would, you would strongly suggest Wayne Barnes in his fifth World Cup from 2007 to now would be the, the class of the field and has shown that and has refereed that way for many big games and has... Annoyed probably every nation along the way because he, he's done so many big games, you can't keep everybody happy all the time. But people believe he's class. And what's really interesting is as he referees, people in general will believe what he says as fact because they know he's got the game's interest in heart. Other referees who don't referee in that style, they irk people much quicker. Maybe I was one of those. But you irk people much quicker because you don't show the class that the top guys do. And that goes from your Luigi Colinas down through your, um, uh, I was going to say, Martin, yeah, let's say Howard Webb, all the way through to your Wayne Barnes. And I think that's that's what gives people confidence in refereeing. JP, um, just you said that comparing incidents is sometimes a bit a bit futile, but I just want a more sort of philosophical point. Um, in, in that England Argentina game where we saw Tom Curry Tom Curry red carded. Um, do you think that the lawmakers and that rugby's got it right, whereby that is a red card, an, an accidental mistimed tackle, whereas the recklessness of Santiago Carreras in charging down that followed um, was only yellow carded? I'm not saying that the officials got it wrong. I'm, I'm sure they got it right and it was by the book. But do you think that philosophically the laws are in the right place, whereby intent is just completely ignored? Um, well, you say intent's completely ignored, but if I ball off my fist, and throw 10 haymakers and miss every single one, the intent to punch you in the head 10 times will be taken into account. Of course, intent is there. People say, well, it's not part of it. If if I was, right, if I give you an example, if I'm at a ruck and I'm going through the ruck and my foot happens to hit someone's knee joint or their neck or whatever, but I had no idea and someone pushed me, that's not a, that's not foul play. If I look at someone and then stand on them, that intent is taken into sorry, account. Talking course, intent it, more in the tackle area, JP, sorry, in, the, in terms of the tackle. So, yeah, and that's why I'm saying what those two incidents, they were looked at for their own unique purpose. They weren't linked as in Carreras is jumping and potentially injuring Ford or Tom Curry is coming in and the, and the fullback is coming out of the air down into him. They were looked at on their own instance. Now, I think they were probably both marginal one way or the other. And sometimes in sport, we have to accept that, that the marginality of calls does happen. 
And I think there was probably a greater prevalence of people in public who said, well, Carreras deliberately did that in their opinion. And Curry was just trying to do the right thing. But if you look at, you talk about doing the right thing, just beside him was Eli in a bent over uh, position, bent at the hips, making a legal tackle. So it could be done. It was Curry's fault. And he had to plead guilty to get his two games. He was banned because the incident happened, not because of the severity of the incident. And just the TMO more generally, do you think that rugby's got the balance right at the minute in in extending the powers of the TMO and introducing this bunker when we've had very high-profile incidents in football this weekend where now there have been calls to abolish VAR completely? Um, Premiership Rugby Cup's currently taking place in England without any TMO at all, and the feedback from fans and coaches is just very positive. And it's, it's, it's much quicker, and they're sort of saying... Uh, we, we we can we can deal with bad decisions better now um, because we, we're going to get them anyway. We get them even with a TMO. Human error is impossible yeah. to 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 eliminate in um, even with a TMO. What so what what's your take on that? Yeah. So again, double sided court. The value of the decision is the most important thing. So in the Premiership Club, with the greatest due respect to it, the teams are happy just to play, and the outcome and the winning and the losing is not of the same value as the Premiership final nor is it the same value as a World Cup quarter semi. When we have to get, people will say, we have to get these big decisions right. And that's what drives needing to have a TMO. The need to make the decisions right for the referee to make things right has brought in first assistance, ARs, and now has brought in TMO, and now has brought in an even further development of an FPRO, the, the, the bunker. So we're layering these things because on the pressure applied by coaches to get absolutely everything right. You're seeing higher penalty counts. And the, the fear we have is when we're watching the game. So there were seven incidents this weekend uh, from Thursday with the, uh, the red card for Lamb all the way to um, uh, uh, Karevi's um, arm out uh, in the Australia game. There were seven incidents. And even the Paulus tackle being the last incident, seven incidents across the weekend. People are all those incidents were missed live. Every single one of them. If that was a normal game, not one of them would have been seen. And the 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 the, the bunker and the TMO are coming to the referee to stop the game. And that's what's causing frustration. We do need to see we're getting more of these live because when you feel the referee is driving um, you know, Ollie's driving the bus, when you feel that the referee is driving the bus, we feel in a better way about it. We feel confidence in them. Go back to what we said about Wayne Barnes earlier. So it, it is about the best will always do better. I understand what we're saying about the Premiership Cup. It's beautiful refereeing when you don't have a TMO because you become infallible again. People believe in you. And there's a there's a thing out there, Black Blocks thinking, you know, the doctors versus um, the airline industry, which should you be? And the TMO has exasperated that with us. So and I've sort of given you loads of different examples along there. Probably complicated the simple for you. But that's the job. It's a really complicated job. But please don't feel sorry for us or for them. It's a very brilliant job, which is well rewarded. We love it. We get great trips. And it's a wonderful thing to be involved in the World Cup. JB, just to finish off, it seems as though the bunk has been been a success in reducing the, the scrutiny on referees and, and speeding up the game. I, I just wondered what else you might like to see introduced to sort of help officials or, or just help the process of the game? I mean, there's been chat about some sort of debrief, I guess, on the weekend after test matches explaining why certain incidents have or haven't been cited. What, what would you like to see potentially introduced? I, I think if, we're, if we had more clarity around what's our ultimate purpose, where are we trying to go with the shape of the game? Let's, be, let's get huge clarity on that. Not agreement. That's totally different. Let's get clarity on where we're going. Let's get on that train and head in that direction. Because at the moment, we maybe perhaps don't have the, the absolute clarity. When we say we, we're talking about the, the punters, the people watching. On the inside, they may feel they have great clarity. On the outside, we feel there's less clarity. Now, that will be and can be improved over time. So do I want to see this law changed or this review or this interview? No, I don't. We just want to see that we know what's happening. We know where it's going to go. If we're going to make them all red, cool. If we're going to make them all yellow and say, look, we'll give the benefit of the doubt. Great. Let's have that as well. I am not wise enough or sage enough to decide that direction of travel. You know, the medics, the people, the boards of directors, they will do that. But if we had that, then you guys will be happier. It's easier to write columns about 
Darcy Graham and his wonderful feet than to talk to, you know, a, a schmo like me up in Perth. I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, don't put yourself down, JP. <laughs> JP, that's really great. Great. Thanks so much for your time. We fully appreciate it. No worries. Anytime, lads. Hope you have a great evening. Right, let's look ahead to this weekend. And Ireland v Scotland, which I think I think we're all in agreement is the most most intriguing game, uh, mainly because it comes along with a huge ring binder full of permutations to try and work out who was actually going to progress to the quarterfinals because Salafka's win against Tonga wasn't enough to put them through automatically. There's still still ways this pool can pan out. So I'm going to do my best here to try and simplify this for everybody at home. Essentially, if Scotland get a bonus point win, then then chaos happens. Yeah. Right. So to boil it down, an e a, a low scoring win for Scotland with no Irish bonus point, a boring, no try Scottish win, and Scotland go through four points, and Scotland go through, and then after that it is chaos. It really is chaos because there's a scenario here where potentially each of Scotland, Ireland and South Africa can end up on 15 points in the table, in, in which case the head-to-head sort of cancels out because each team has a head-to-head win against each other. And then you're getting down to points difference and the the almost comical situation where for that to happen, Ireland would have to get a try bonus point, Scotland would have to win with a try bonus point and everyone's on 15 and Scotland according to World Rugby, must then win by 21 points or more to claim top spot ahead of South Africa. And then Ireland would then qualify as the runners-up on the head-to-head, which would knock South Africa out of the pool stages. I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it's going to come down to this because I, <laughs> I was doing a bit of this earlier. And Scotland haven't beaten Ireland by more than 20 points since 2001. Yeah. And they haven't beaten them by more than 10 points since, since 2007. So, so you're, looking at, you're looking at something... Just utterly, utterly, utterly extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, we're taking all this time. The abacuses are out. We're taking all this time. And realistically, Ireland are going to win by 20 points. So it's just all completely immaterial, isn't it? Well, that sucks a bit of the fun out of this section of the podcast. Well, well, you're meant to tell me now, Charles, how Scotland can beat Ireland, this Ireland team, on this ludicrous run of consecutive test wins. This is the thing. I think if they go hell for leather, and I think if they play the way that Scotland want to play in their style with lots of width and playing... uh, at a really high tempo and Finn Russell playing really well and getting on the front foot and standing really flat and wrapping around to a Bellotti really nicely. And I think they're going to score. They're going to start scoring tries. This is in the hypothetical dream world of, of, of Scotland doing every single thing that they need to do. They're going to score tries, which is then going to compel Ireland to respond with scoring tries. And we're going to have a real humdinger of a game, but that's not what Scotland want. Scotland want a 15-6. A 15-6 win for Scotland, which doesn't sound like a, a, a thumping or a hammering, and they're through to the quarterfinals. So it, it, they're going to have to play almost quite un-Scotland-like. I don't think they will. I think in these scenarios, you have to just go out and, and just give it your all and hope and, and just see what happens. It's with the gods and just play your way, the way that you know and hope that you get the win. But it would be so tragic, wouldn't it, if, if Scotland went and beat Ireland and then went home. Like That, that would actually be, that would be gutting. There is a scenario out there which which is so complicated that it makes my brain start to melt. But yeah. it's basically that Ireland, if the scoreline is if the scoreline works out and the bonus points work out as they do, but Ireland would need to miss a conversion for the points difference to be right for them to get through to. I mean, I, mean, I think at that point rugby gets in the bin, doesn't it? Yeah. With with the game itself, um, Charlie, a a, te- a technical question about Ireland's lineout, which we've been. Fairly uh, concerned, concerned by I would say because it's only had about one game where it's really fired against Tonga. I think it was Dan Sheehan's back. Is he the key to Ireland's line-out troubleshooting issues, or, or or is it deeper than that? It it would seem to be deeper than that because there's a couple of hookers now that have had a bit of trouble with it. Um, it's really interesting. The more you the more you hear from the Irish journalists that get to listen to Paul O'Connell every media session, they're just enthralled to how detailed how diligent he he seems to be and how kind of compelling he seems to be with what he's saying so that's it's a really interesting thing that that his area of expertise has sort of fallen down and albeit fallen down against South Africa against the side who are really really good in that area I'd expect it to improve just given the time that they've had to to fix it the the really interesting area I'm looking forward to watching is how Ireland's defense nullify Finn Russell trying to beat 
beat that sort of 13 channel because South Africa were just phenomenal there. And sort of watching that game, I was at that game live in Marseille and didn't really, I don't think, really appreciated it live. And then watching it back, you're going, God, the, how coordinated they are, how relentless they are at shutting off those channels was just fantastic. Really interesting to see how, whether Ireland go after them in the same way and whether Scotland have figured out a way of kind of countering that. The, the selection on that note of, of Darcy Graham is, is kind of fascinating because do Scotland go with sort of a more well-rounded more physical winger in Carl Stane who, who might serve them better in a, in a kicking battle sort of under the high ball and win those advantages or do they just go with the with the X-Factor player who's, who's just wrapped up loads of tries against Romania who's actually got Stuart records national record in his sights now which I hadn't quite appreciated he's on Darcy Graham's now on 24 Hogg's record is 27 that feels quite telling they're either going to try and match Ireland or they're going to try and do it their own way what do you what do you think Charlie as a, as a neutral I want Darcy Graham to play every game I'm watching to be honest so no I really hope they go with him um, I just think they're going to they're obviously going to have to score tries what you've got with Darcy Graham is he's, he's actually fairly really well rounded product of seven so decent over the ball break, defensive breakdown um, he would have been he'd have been fizzing with how he went against South Africa just because that big big chance he probably didn't make it was amazing amazing cover tackle from Manny Libot but he probably could have done a little bit better with that um, that line break but he just looks so sharp doesn't he and he just gives gives that that framework that Scotland have got with with Finn and Russell um, fizzing passes and as Charles Charles explained there to um, Sione Tarupilotu on the front line playing pullbacks they just he just gives you that little bit more unpredictability around the ruck. He's just so so resourceful there, so sparky. Really hope he plays. It was a great week to have him as the captain of your fancy team for those of you who dabbled. Um, Charles, the other big game of the weekend, France against Italy. I I can't quite believe that this this pool is is still up in the air and that France France need need to win, but they do. They do. Uh, and. For Italy to go from shipping 96 points against New Zealand to, to beating France would be some turnaround. But you're looking at me with, with, with fear in your eyes as though it's not completely out of the question. I don't, I don't know. Well, I just I, if you just if we if we if we think about the facts here, I don't think Italy are going to be as bad as they they can't be as bad. Be quite as hard. They were, yeah, as they were against New Zealand. So yeah. they will be better. And there is going to be pressure on France. There is going to be pressure on France without Antoine Dupont, who we think is coming back for the quarterfinals. We think Maxime Lucu will be starting at scrum half. Dupont back for the quarters or the semis if they make it. Um, so France without their talismanic captain, the poster boy of the tournament, they've got to win. They're playing at Lyon, uh, a stadium that they don't usually play in so often. Um, they, as they, they have to win the pressure of hosts and Italy, there will be a response from Italy and strange things have happened. As I said, we've not had our upset yet and I'm, I'm still waiting for it. I'm there in Lyon, so uh, you know I would probably quite like a France win because it would be, there'd be a fantastic atmosphere around the city uh, and it means that I could probably go to bed a little bit earlier than if Italy won, in which case there's going to be all the fallout and um, hosts crashing out in the, in the pool stages, which hasn't happened since, oh wait. You're not uh, sleeping. Yeah, France lose. If no, yeah, if France lose, I'm not. If France win, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Get, let's see what let's see what the uh, see what the party's like in Lyon. Do we get uh, Julien Marchand back for this? Or is it too no, soon? no, too early, too early. So it'll be Movaka carrying on at hooker, which is obviously a, he's a, a wonderful understudy. He really is. Um, but yeah, I mean, Italy. It, it, we'll wait and see what their what their sort of um, injury list is like. They had a few who went off. Danilo Fischetti, uh, uh, sort of, who were big fans of on the pod, went off injured, and the scrum really suffered after he left. Um, so, and they're obviously missing Menoncello, who's one of their best backs, and sort of with, with this sort of strike running firepower that they that they were lacking a little bit. They moved the ball so well, but they may be lacking a little bit of cutting edge. I, look, I don't think Italy are going to win, but there's a part of me that, th that, th that they could. I mean, they pushed them very close in the Six Nations. Um, and as I said, pressure on France because they didn't get that bonus point against Uruguay. It's, it's 80 minutes of rugby. What if what if France got a really early red card and they've got to play the whole game of 14 men with all the pressure of hosts, not the captain? You know, As I said, stranger things have happened. What if they get two? What, what, if, they get two? what if they get three? Charlie, Charlie and I are going to set you down here. They'll be all right, won't they, France? I don't know. Oh, how many, how many people? Put, oh, how many no. put, how many people put money? Oh on no, sorry, yeah, the thirty-three to one shot that France yes, would get out of the pool. Of no, I think they'd be fine. I think they'd be fine. I forgot about that mm. there. That bit of wisdom from you. Right, those are the previews of the games. We're going to get into some of your questions now. Okay, we're just going to finish off with some of your questions. Thank you ever so much for sending them in. Um, but before that, we just wanted to talk about the situation with Jersey last week, which was incredibly sad to read. Um, 
the latest English side going into administration, just a desperate situation for players, for staff, for supporters. Charlie, you were across the story last week. Can you just sort of give us a, an idea of what happened and, and what it all means? Yeah, really horrible echoes of, of obviously what happened with three three top flight clubs in, in Worcester, Wasp and London Irish last season, albeit in a sort of more sudden manner. Um, so very quickly, um, we got a we got a statement from the club. There were rumours kind of circulated before that. The players meeting at 7.30 in the morning last Thursday. Um, we'd figured out subsequently from a statement from the club that the club had ceased to trade on Wednesday night and that they thought that uh, liquidation was inevitable um, because a backer had pulled out. The backer has subsequently proven to be the government. Um, and just this happening, as ever, we've got the human cost, which is players having to find um, new jobs, um, their livelihoods sort of on the line of players and staff when these things aren't easy to come by. Um, and and just the fact that it's the championship winners from last season sort of is a real indictment of, well, actually where we are at the minute in, in English rugby union, in English club rugby union, sorry, which is figuring out the structure of, of the league going forward. So the investors uh, sort of, made it clear that they weren't able to commit given the uncertainty around these negotiations of the the PGA that's going on at the minute. Um, and that's just difficult. It's difficult for everybody to stomach, not least the, the players that are, that are in this quagmire, but also you look at that in the context of the whole game in this country, seriously worrying. I mean, you, we were all across the Worcester and Worcester stuff last year, weren't we? And, and the London Irish stuff, you, you two in particular covered closely to, to have another club go to the wall like this is is really really desperate and i think it's one of those things that once the, the world cup is almost a bit of a distraction at the moment isn't it because all our our attention is kind of on that but we're desperately thinking of all the players and the staff at jersey as well yeah absolutely and, it, and it's yielded a sort of public blame game by what whereby there are a few who have have insisted there have been no red flags the the union's kind of financial viability group reinforced this at a, at a council meeting on friday and saying look we were looking into these finances we've got a list of clubs that could potentially be at risk jersey were never coming up um jersey's investors are blaming the rfu and saying that their negotiations for the new pga should have been more public and more sort of widely known so that we could have this certainty in the middle of all of this it's really important to stress that the players and staff totally in the dark they're, they're believing that they're hitting targets they're operating under budgetary confines winning the league with that. winning the league in under yeah. these budgetary confines what else can they do um, and that's the really the horrible bit of it because as much as I've just said that it reflects badly on English rugby there are individuals here with livelihoods at stake through no fault of their own who are almost being misled in all of this and that's and that's just really difficult stomach that's really desperate stuff um to get on to some of your questions uh, about the World Cup, we had one from Simon Thomas, the Welsh rugby writer, um, asking what's the best city and venue that you've been to so far in the World Cup? Charles, what, Charles, what's the kind of the one that stands out? Well, I mean, I've only been to two so far. I'm doing a third and fourth this weekend in, in Lyon and Lille. Uh, but I have also watched um, France last year in Marseille. Um, I think in terms of this World Cup, Paris... Paris was awesome on that opening game on that opening weekend for, for France New Zealand. I remember uh, having a stroll around the the, the fan park at, at Concord um, in the day uh, just before kickoff, and it was it was terrific. But having said that, I've not been down to Marseille in the World Cup, but that Stade Velodrome is a is something very very special. That stadium, uh, I will never forget watching that France South Africa game there last year. It was spine tingling stuff from minute one to 80 it was it was unforgettable yeah it's a great spot charlie give me marseille yeah definitely the venue and the city as well actually quite easy to get around yeah as i said on the first pod quite vibey really enjoyed it the, the leon stadium it is fantastic it's just not the easiest to get to just a word of warning for any any fans trying to get there in the in the coming days but leave some time well me on thursday and friday leave, leave some time and if you're sat where i was you sort of had Pigeons in the rafters overlooking your shoulder, just checking your copy for you, which was quite quite helpful. Um, I thought Nantes was was lovely as well. Really nice city. It, it's been look, there have been issues at this World Cup. There, there always tend to be on the on the first games in cities or the, the first weekend. But but I think generally the the stadium and, and the, the facilities available have been pretty pretty impressive in some ways. Bordeaux not troubling the scores for you. Bordeaux, Bordeaux I did like a lot. Bordeaux was there 
two games beautiful town actually mm. um yeah really really nice no I, I i haven't got any complaints really it's been fantastic and um and just to finish our questions one from martin about what's the moment of the rugby world cup so far that's taken your breath away which i now have the song stuck in my head yeah. uh charlie anything from you i was getting over with just and it kind of so corroborated watching portugal on telly and just when they're playing across a rush defense that sort of almost that last pass on the edge that they play, like that guy's going to get smashed on. Oh, no, he's got it away. It's awesome. So that watching that live against Wales, and it was quite nice that it still looked pretty cool on telly mm. against Australia when they were doing the same thing. So there you go. There's one. Um, easy for me. The the two is over pass to Sammy Randrandra drop at the finale of Wales oh, Fiji. Yeah, um, sure. I was shaking. I was in. Well, me and Colsey, we were both in the stadium, and I was shaking uh, at that point. I was shaking afterwards for probably a good five minutes, just uncontrollable tremors of my of my hands. And yeah, um, easy. I mean, there was a, there was a, there's a few other contenders as well. George Ford, the the drop goals and Bottier's offload against Georgia. You know, other contenders, but I, I think that was hands down it for me. I was shaking because I was trying to work out how I was going to change my entire <laughs> report if Fiji won <laughs> and, where, and Wales had been pipped at the death with uh, with deadlines fast approaching. That's a little little incident pulling back the curtain. It's um, I don't know if I've quite had a moment. I haven't quite had a moment yet, like Japan in Brighton in 2015, or or watching Japan in the group stages of 2019 when they were pulling off wins and sort of being in in cities for that. Yeah, but but it's but it's just sort of generally been. I, I was at Fiji, Australia, and that was. Uh, it it was it felt important, but equally Fiji was so comfortable that it didn't. Fit, uh, yeah, it didn't necessarily take my breath away. But that's probably the moment I've enjoyed the most. Argentina, Samoa, anyone? Or no, no. Time to end the pod there. I think. Right, that's it for today. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charles. And a big thanks to JP Doyle as well for joining us to give us his insight on the officiating at the tournament. There's one more round of pool action this weekend before attention turns to the quarterfinals. As ever, you can keep up with coverage on the Telegraph website from all of us and all of our writers, including our leading panel of pundits and experts. Enjoy all the action this weekend. We certainly will, and we'll catch you next week. But until then, from all three of us, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>